Amen. You may be seated. That, uh, that last amen, I think, caught about half, as a, half of us off guard. But uh, yeah, it's great to be here with you today. Uh, my name is Brent Fugate. I'm the senior pastor here at Byfield Parish Church. I wasn't here last week. I was helping out on a whitewater rafting trip for a bunch of middle school boys that was happening here through the church. And thankfully, everyone survived. I was actually... I was actually a little bit disappointed. Nobody fell out of a raft. I kind of wanted to push one of the kids out, but I I didn't do it. So um, everybody was good. Everybody had a good time. And yeah, we're uh, we're coming to the end of summer. Uh, For some of you, that's a relief. You uh, would prefer it not be so hot. And for some of you, that's a little bit sad. But as Anne mentioned, we'll be returning to our normal Sunday schedule, not next week, but the following week after that. Throughout this summer, we have been focusing each week on who Jesus is as part of our continuing cognitive behavioral theology series. Jesus is the Word, the God, the man, the child, the prophet, the priest, the king, the lion, and the lamb. There are a lot of other roles Jesus fills that we haven't talked about. We could talk about how Jesus is the healer or the beginning. He is also the end. To conclude our summer, we are going to talk about how Jesus is the judge. Just as with any role Jesus fills, what we believe about how he fills it will determine how we live, the decisions we make. We are often guilty of misunderstanding Jesus. This leads to shortcomings in the ways we go about our business. This is true of so many of Jesus' roles. It is definitely true when it comes to him being the judge. Let's turn to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. This is one of the places in Scripture where it speaks about Jesus the Lord as judge. The verses will be projected on the screen behind me. You can also turn to page 952 if you prefer to use the Pew Bible. Like I said, we will begin reading in chapter 5, verse 7, and go through verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Nobody wants to be judged themselves. At the same time, pretty much everyone wants someone else to be judged. We take satisfaction when we feel that other people get what they deserve. It feels like the way things should be. Except we don't think we should get what we deserve. I don't know about you, but when I fall short and act, or act like a jerk, I should get a second chance that my enemies shouldn't. Our mixed feelings about judgment probably explains our discomfort with Jesus' role as judge. We tend to either embrace the idea wholeheartedly or reject it completely depending on the situation. Mostly depending on who we are talking about getting judged. Jesus being the judge is foundational for all of Christianity. He is the just and merciful judge. It is not unusual for those who identify as Christians to be impatient for Jesus to return as judge. I grew up in a church setting where judgment was a topic that frequently came up. This happened in a variety of ways and Sunday morning services, judgment was preached on. The pastor didn't preach hellfire and brimstone to us routinely, but he did make it clear that judgment was coming. The sermon through which I expressed a saving faith in Jesus Christ at the age of 12 was on the wheat and the tares, Jesus' parable. The clear implication of this parable is that there were those who appeared to be Christians, but were not. These people would be cast out of God's presence. They would be judged, and I did not want to be one of them. Later, when I was a teenager, my youth group visited Judgment House programs that other churches were putting on. Now, I have a feeling, I grew up in Tennessee, I have a feeling there were not a lot of judgment houses taking place in New England, you know, 25, 30 years ago, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on that. For those of you that are not familiar, a judgment house is a play that takes place, it, it moves through a space, or actually the audience moves through a space where a story of individual judgment is told. It is a bit like a haunted house with a clear narrative being acted out that is focused on judgment. I actually think these judgment houses would always happen around Halloween. You might picture Ebenezer Scrooge's experience with the third ghost in A Christmas Carol, where the part of the third ghost is being played by a 23-year-old youth pastor. The story of judgment being told in a judgment house 
was always focused on one character who had died. Normally, they were drinking and driving. The audience who went through the judgment house was supposed to want to avoid the judgment the main character experienced. The whole point was to scare participants into Jesus' arms, informing them of the dangers of drinking and driving was just a bonus. For those at my church who were more interested in an intellectual understanding of judgment, the whole, where the whole world was involved, there was Sunday night church. If you went to Sunday night church, you were really hardcore. It was just like Sunday morning church, except the sermon was deeper. It was more teaching oriented. Multiple times when I was growing up, we went through extended sermon series on the book of Revelation at Sunday night church. Based on the pastor's interpretation of the symbolic images that were preached on, it was clear God's judgment of the whole world was likely to take place in my lifetime. Now, when you're 15, this is pretty bad news. I remember my friends and I talking about how we hoped Jesus didn't return in judgment until we had at least gotten married and had kids of our own. While my experience of hearing about judgment at church may seem unusual to some of you, it's actually not that uncommon. When things are not going the way we want them to go, in the world, we take comfort in the belief that there will be consequences. Most movies directed at teenagers include as a plot point the idea that a bully will get the judgment they deserve. Fairy tales and action movies include the same premise. The human desire for judgment is rooted in the conviction that the world should be fair. The scales of justice should be balanced. Evil must be punished. Good must be rewarded. The more this is not the case in the present, the more people hope it will be in the future. Historically, the more downtrodden a group of people is, the more interested they will be in judgment. If a person feels abused and taken advantage of by the world, they are going to be hoping for a remedy. This desire for judgment isn't wrong. While it often leads to error, the problem is not the desire itself. For showing their lack of sophistication. The people that say this sort of thing would dismiss the frequent references in the Bible to judgment as a result of ignorance. Sure, people used to think and talk about judgment, but we, we are the enlightened. We have gotten past all of that. Judgment is a sort of placebo for the masses. There are two linked beliefs that underlie the rejection of judgment present in our society. 
The first belief is that evil is not a real thing that exists. The second belief is that people are inherently good. The Bible and history both make pretty clear that evil is real. People are not inherently good. And thus judgment is called for. Recently, I was listening to a history podcast that was focused on the Pacific theater in World War II. I've referenced this podcast before, and the podcaster read the firsthand account of atrocities committed in the capital of the Philippines, Manila, during a battle that happened there. If I repeated this firsthand account, if I read it right now, many of you would weep. A few of you would probably become physically sick. My response to hearing of these events 76 years after they happened was wrath. I wanted those responsible for unimaginable evil to experience judgment. I cannot imagine what those who actually experienced it firsthand would have felt. It is easy for a modern person to think judgment is antiquated when the worst thing that has happened to them is a bad customer service experience. If only everyone was so insulated from the evil humanity can bring about. A lack of awareness of the need for judgment is an indicator of tremendous privilege. Unfortunately, even in the past week, events in Afghanistan are forcing Americans to deny the delusion that evil is not real and that people are inherently good. The bombs of terrorists lay bare the lie that judgment is outdated. Jesus will return to judge the world and everyone in it. Verse seven of today's text says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. This is easier said than done. While we wait, injustice continues to happen. It happens in our personal lives. We read about it in the news. We want evil to be dealt with now. The longer we have to live, with injustice, the more frequent we question where Jesus is, why does he delay? James advises us to be like a farmer as we wait. Events have to run their course. A farmer cannot hurry the rains or the growth that results. We cannot hurry along the events through which judgment will come. We must establish our hearts. 
for the coming of the Lord is at hand, what we wait on will happen on God's timeline. So much of what needs to happen already has. We are to be like the prophets of old. They remained steadfast because they believed that God would bring about justice in the end. That is the key to maintaining steadfastness. As Christians, we wait for the world to be judged, who wait for the world to be judged. We need to remember that we will be judged. James highlights a specific behavior that warrants Jesus' judgment to warn the people he is writing to. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. This seems to us insignificant compared to all that is going on in the world. Why is James talking about Christians not grumbling in the same breath in which he is talking about a world filled with crushing injustice? Christian grumbling doesn't seem comparable to the world's injustice. Not grumbling while we wait for Jesus is hard. Grumbling feels called for when waiting. I don't know about you, but anytime I am waiting, I feel compelled to grumble. This is why I've given up on going to Starbucks. Every time I go, I have to wait 10 to 15 minutes for a cup of coffee. By the time I get the cup of coffee, I've spent so much time grumbling, I don't even enjoy the coffee. Why does James highlight grumbling when it seems like such a routine, insignificant issue? He does so because grumbling is routine, but it is not insignificant. The injustice of this world is often the result of actions that appear small to those committing them. There's a lot of evil that comes about through grumbling. If you had to trace most wars back to their beginnings, you would find a group of people grumbling to one another about something. People feel they have been treated unfairly. They talk about it a lot. The sense of being aggrieved grows. Next thing you know, those same people feel justified in doing horrific things. The larger point James is making is that we need to live our lives with the awareness that we will be judged for our actions, great and small. It's a scary thing to consider. If grumbling results in judgment, what about the other thoughts I have that seem so much worse even to me? Judgment is not all we have to look forward to. It is true God must bring about justice in this world. It is inherent in who he is. 
It is no less inherent in who Jesus is. Jesus and God are not reading from different scripts. They are unified in their approach. Evil must be done away with. It must be destroyed. There is no good alternative. The Lord sees more than any other being the extent of the damage people have perpetuated on one another. The atrocities in the news are not news to Jesus. God sees how the lust and greed of mankind causes us to behave like animals. Nobody should want to worship a God who doesn't take evil seriously. The idea of a world where the strong could steal from the weak with no consequence is repulsive. This is often how the world feels today, and I am not a fan. The issue all people face is that we all deserve judgment ourselves. We have all grumbled. This grumbling hasn't just happened when the person in front of us in line at the 20 items or less line at Market Basket has 35 items. We have grumbled against the Lord. Our response to his goodness has been rejection. We were not satisfied by God or Jesus, so we have looked elsewhere. By doing so, we propagate evil. Our own participation in evil may seem insignificant to us. We do tend to excuse our own shortcomings. Our failures are worthy of judgment. What a relief it is for us to know that the necessary judgment of Jesus is not where James leaves us. He writes, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Whenever you come across the judgment of the Lord in scripture, it is almost always followed by a reminder of the compassion and mercy of the Lord. This happens again and again. Isaiah 54, 7 and 8 are a great example of this. Those verses say, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. The most clear example of this judgment followed by compassion is that the cross of Christ is quickly followed by the empty tomb. To know the depth of the compassion we are being shown, it is necessary to understand the extent of the judgment that compassion is offsetting for us. Those who don't believe in the justice of the Lord will have a low view of the mercy of the Lord. You can't have one without the other. 
The purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ is to show mercy. What a relief. We are not condemned by judgment. Our hope is in the mercy of Jesus. He has taken upon himself the judgment of all who turn to him. Jesus is the judge. He is also the sacrifice that willingly pays the price for our judgment. Jesus is the judge who shows mercy. An awareness of Jesus as judge feeds into a clear knowledge of the penalty he has paid on our behalf. This awareness and the knowledge that comes with it is a tremendous mental relief to us. We do not have to live in fear that wrath awaits us at the end of our day. We can confidently enjoy the mercy of the Lord. At the same time, this doesn't mean we don't take evil and the judgment that follows it seriously. The scales of justice will be balanced by Jesus when he judges all things. As we wait patiently for Jesus to judge and show mercy, the way we interact with the people we run into on a daily basis must reflect that Jesus is our merciful judge. In life, we are going to have people that hurt us, whether it be intentional or not. It is legitimate to want those who hurt us to pay for the pain they have caused. We desire a just judgment. Depending on the nature of the relationship, we might seek financial damages or we might seek to inflict emotional damage back on them. As those who know Jesus, we must remember that the judgment we deserved has been offset by the mercy we didn't. We should desire for that same mercy to be shown to those who we could fairly judge for the ways they have hurt us. Too many Christians are great at desiring judgment while being bad at desiring compassion and mercy. This indicates they have an inferior knowledge of the judgment they deserve and the mercy they have been shown. A complete lack of desire for our enemies to experience mercy is a tremendous indicator that a person who claims to be a Christian doesn't even really know what that means. Here's my challenge to you today. We, we've done this before. We'll probably do it again six months from now, a year from now. Think about the person or the group of people that you judge most severely in this world. It might be someone sitting in this room. It could be a family member. For some, it was a high school bully. 
For others, they might think of a politician they have never even met. Whoever it might be, I want you to think about the judgment you deserve from Jesus as judge. Then remember the mercy you have been shown. Next, think about the judgment the person you loathe deserves. Finally, seek to extend to them the mercy that Jesus has shown you. Jesus is the merciful judge. His judgment comforts us in a world filled with evil. His mercy comforts us because we are a part of that world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this is a repeated issue for all of us. We live in a world with so much pain, so much evil and injustice. And when we hear about events in the national news, are we experience evil and injustice firsthand, it is right and appropriate for us for, to want the scales of justice to be balanced, for us to deny, desire judgment. At the same time, Lord, we know that we need mercy in the face of just judgment, Lord. And that this world needs mercy and everyone in it, Lord. So I pray that in our desire for justice, we would also remember mercy. That as the righteous judge, Jesus is both just and merciful. We ask that you would be with us as we live out these truths. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.